Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm Callum. And I'm James, and we know you're not afraid of anything. Box falls out of the sky, man falls out of the box, man eats fish custard, and look at you, just sitting there. So you know what I think? What? Must be a hell of a scary podcast in your wall. And every fortnight here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. On today's episode, we are on to Pastures New in the very first episode of the Stephen Moffat era, the 11th hour. As always, just a quick reminder that you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Two Hearts Pod, and that's to the number two. Or if you want to have your longer thoughts and feelings aired on the show, feel free to email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's to the word two. Callum, you have been in Sydney recently, ongoing banter, etc. Yes, that was a very natural segue, wasn't it, James? Thanks for that. Mm, um, no script at all. No script, no script at all. Uh, yes, look, and uh, I have been in the SIDS. I've been in Sydney visiting uh, some friends and I went for work, uh, but I went also went to go to the Sydney Film Festival um, and I saw a lot of films. I saw a lot of films. Were any of those films Doctor Who related? Well, no. Uh, then shut up. <laughs> <laughs> they were queer um, and they were horrific. Mm. I didn't see any science fiction, which I also don't see many science fiction films in film festivals anyway. Um, True. But Underrepresented genre, one might say. One might say that, yes. But I had a good time nonetheless. How have you been? Oh, I've been thriving. I've been getting it done, living my truth. Um, I actually genuinely have been. Uh, th- I've, I've made a couple of, um, let's say, career changes recently, uh, sort of sort of shifting my my writing output a little bit, and I'm I'm quite excited to sort of talk a bit more about that as as I come into it a little bit. But um, yeah, things are moving and shaking over in uh, James Land. Well, mm. we're just that pleased for your love. Aren't we all? Um, we have some Doctor Who news once again oh to gosh. talk about. Can you imagine? Do you remember, like, like, all of last year when we were recording this podcast being like, yep, no new news. Uh, nothing. Nothing yep. to report. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, now, and now look at us. A dearth. A dearth. A dearth. Because Russell's back, obviously. And it was announced today, the first time we've actually been able to get on to some... Although, when this episode goes out, I suppose this will be very I was going to say, I think this is going out in a month's time. Yeah. (laughs) Great. We're really on it. Um, From our perspective today, it was announced that Neil Patrick Harris is going to be in the one of the, or all of the, whatever's happening at the 60th anniversary, they'll be in it. Um, Mm. uh, Playing, well, we don't really know what they're playing other than the greatest enemy the Doctor has ever known, apparently. Um, And there's a picture accompanying... Which is him looking very stern in this like old timey outfit, um, mm-hmm. very very um, sixties Doctor Who look. Yes, very much so. It is uh, it's very campy, um, mm. which is kind of exciting uh, because I and this kind of ties into the other bit of news that we we well the leak that we have to talk about I suppose, but like um, it. It seems like on the flip side of the Tennant and uh, Donna announcement stuff, uh, we've just got this like 
dearth once again of, of really bizarre reference points for Doctor <laughs> Who that seem to be showing up in this uh, special or series of specials. And um, yeah, Neil Patrick Harris's whole aesthetic and get up um, thoroughly confusing, but very exciting. Yes. Uh, yeah. And there's a particular kind of old time, like I said, uh, vibe to the picture they put out. Um which seems to, in some ways, connect up with this other sort of bit of leaked uh, information. Spoiler alert, if you are the kind of person who doesn't want to know anything. Um, it looks like from on-set filming that we've been seeing a couple of obscure characters from Doctor Who comics, like 70s comics, mm. are going to be possibly appearing. Um, namely, the Wraith Warriors and Beep the Meep. <laughs> <laughs> which James had the lovely uh, joy of like being introduced to what a beat the meep is this week. I truly did. Uh, it has been a educational time for James. Let me tell you that much because it just looks like something out of Star Wars, like out of a Star Wars comic, um, which I, I guess kind of lines up with franchise trajectory tra- and, and uh, supplementary material. But um, yeah, it's, I assume that what we're looking at here is uh, probably a fake out leak like it's either going to be internal like within the narrative there will be like a joke about wouldn't it be ridiculous if fans got all of this kind of like nostalgic throwback stuff or it's just planted on set to give us something to chit chat about while we ignore the fact that they also blew up a truck in Donna's street and it looked amazing mm. um so you know that it I, I have no idea what's going on, but the fact that I have no idea what's going on, that all these like disparate elements, like, you know, Neil Patrick Harris's costuming, uh, tenants return and whatnot, um, you know, <clears throat> beat the meat. I can't piece it together in my brain. I don't know what this is actually going to look like. And that is so exciting. It is exciting. And yeah, there's like lots of chatter. Lots of people are talking about it and we still don't know a thing. I think it's really, it's really exciting. It's a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. Speaking of exciting times, <laughs> Callum. <laughs> Speaking of exciting times, it's exciting times here on our podcast because we are officially on the start of the Stephen Moffat era. Exactly, the Moffat era. Um, this has been a long time coming. Uh, I, I've made no allusions to the fact that this is sort of this is going to be my time to to sort of shine on the show. Um, and I, I guess let's just dive right in with the eleventh hour. The eleventh hour is episode one of series five of the Doctor Who revival. It was written by our brand new showrunner Stephen Moffat and directed by Adam Smith. Now, folks listening at home, we are here at Two Hearts, painfully aware of how painful our plot descriptions have become lately. Uh, we've been lifting them from Wikipedia. We haven't really been trying all that much, and it has been dry content. So, um, which we're going to change things up because it's it's new Moffat, new new era of the show. Sorry, baby. Um, we will be doing a, a bit that I'm lifting straight from the This Had Oscar Buzz uh, podcast, where um, essentially uh, we will be taking turns, giving each other 60 seconds to do like a very quick plot description of the episode that we're about to talk about um, in the effort to make things a bit more entertaining and uh, faster for you listening at home. Yes. So that means that I need to bring up a 60 second timer because I'm going to time James when he does the, our inaugural 60-second plot description challenge, which we're not calling it. I've just called it that. So, I'm going to lead you in. I'm going to count three, two, one, and on one, you're going to go. All right? Three, 
two, one. Okay, so the Doctor regenerates and crashes into Earth uh, sometime in the early 2000s. He meets a little girl called Amelia Pond in her house. They form up a friendship. He's like, all right, I've got to go fix the TARDIS. Ends up uh, accidentally skipping ahead like 15 years or something into the future. Comes back, finds uh, Amelia has now grown into Amy Pond and is still living in that same house. But there is also an alien that has taken up residence in the house after escaping from a prison through the crack in her wall. Uh, Amy and the Doctor then run around town trying to figure things out while the alien is escaping because the prison guards have arrived on Earth and have said they're going to blow up the Earth unless they turn over the prisoner. Rory is also there, Amy's boyfriend. They all end up at the hospital together uh, because the alien is taking advantage of comatose patients. The doctor reminds everybody who he is. The aliens get really scared and they run away and then Amy decides to run away from her wedding day, which is the next day, and travel through time and space with the doctor. Three seconds to spare. That was good. It did it a real injustice, but uh, we got there. You, you, yeah. I think next time you do it, you should just like try to get it all out, and don't worry if you don't get to sixty seconds. But that's the whole point of the sixty-second plot description. Yes, but then if you don't, if you if you lose, then I'll feel better. (laughs) So welcome to the Moffat era, everybody. (laughs) Here we are. Moffat um, is here. It's it's queer. Um, well, it, it will be, um, yeah, not, not quite yet. We'll, we'll, we'll mm. before mm. I start we'll rambling, what are your thoughts and feelings on this very first episode, James? Um, the 11th hour is like, it, it's just kind of a big ball of fun. Um, you know, it, it's a very lighthearted way to kick off, um, the new era basically you know we 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 start with that like shot of earth again and this time we zoom in but instead it's the crashing tardis and and the doctor and it kind of it it centers matt smith as this you know very young vibrant wacky kind of uh interpretation of the character and then it equally does an amazing job i think of setting up um amy and and sort of where we end up going with her character and the kind of the girl running away from her life and her responsibilities and so you get a really good foundation of the character work that's going to go into these two lead roles for the season. Um, the tone is generally very light on its feet and fun, mysterious, very fairy tale like as well, which is a very Stephen Moffat thing that we're going to sort of see a lot recurring over his time on the show. Um, looks good. I mean, the CG has definitely aged quite poorly, I would say. Like, it, it's shockingly ugly at times. But uh, Adam Smith's directing is really solid. Um, it's It's just a fun episode even if it's a little bit bloated towards the end what about you how do you feel about it i don't think the cg looked that bad mm. give me an example the eyeballs they look fine they're big eyes Did they look fine no <laughs> no <laughs> they do the job they're big eyes what they do what, when you read on the page big eyeball <clears throat> they're exactly what you think the big eyes are going to look yeah, like. Yeah, I guess big eyeball in a crystal floating UFO. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, that's certainly what is there. That's true. They certainly got the job done. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going for that with that. Uh, look, yes, I, I there's been so much said about this episode um, over time uh, in, in much the same way as sort of Blink is sort of hailed as this like holy, holier... Um, episode of Doctor Who that is unparalleled in its perfection. This episode is often held up as like the like the key first episode to um 
you know, the key, how to do a first Doctor episode, like the best of them, uh, a good jumping on point for new fans, um, Mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. And it it definitely does hold up as an episode of television uh, today. I remember at the time when it went out, uh, I would have been in year 11, I reckon, um, or 10. Yeah, I would have been... Oh, no, yeah, it would have been in year 10. Wow. Anyway. um, (laughs) And uh, I remember this episode going out and it was... Yeah, like, it is just... It was just completely unlike, obviously, what had gone before Mm. um, with Russell T. um, But there is a definite difference of intention straight from the the off um, with this episode. And you can tell immediately by the fact that, like, we have there's the use of time. Like it's there right at the very start with yeah. the time jump. Um, it's not in London. It's in the country. Um, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot more emphasis on the doctor to the point where they're almost the main character where the companion mm-hmm. had previously been that audience character, at least in those first season episodes were always the ones that we followed through the narrative. Um, yep. So yeah, like all of those things, are there and they're working perfectly in this episode. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it, 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 it benefits from being the first episode, obviously, uh, because it's so fresh, you know, and that feeling yeah, of freshness yeah. is what permeates everything that they do with this episode. Um, mm-hmm. good stuff. Yeah. Just, just a generally really solid start to, uh, to kick off this whole thing. Uh, I guess, I, broadly speaking, I I would like to start with Matt Smith, um, because he is such a different speed and tone, (laughs) um, for the, for the show at this point. And, you know, you said that it's a really good jumping on point for new fans. And I agree with that. Um, you know, you, you put in your notes that, uh, it's an emphasis on the doctor as an uncomplicated hero, you know, at least temporarily. Um, and I very much see that here because like, yeah, we get that little bit at the end where it's like, Oh, silence will fall, but it's very bad wolfy. It's just kind of background, you know, fate mm. noise or whatever. Um, the doctor himself isn't out here being like, mm, I survived a time war. You know, they make it a point almost where um, he's talking to Amelia when she's a kid and she's like, I don't have a mum and dad. All I have is an aunt. And he's like, I don't even have an aunt. And she's like, you know, you must be lucky or whatever. And you could very much see an RTD doctor sort of having like a, a darker moment with that, whatever. This doctor though, he comes in and he's like, I know. And like, mm. he's he's got that childish kind of like, giddiness about him um Mm. and i think that is simultaneously fun in the moment for the viewer to watch i think matt smith is having an absolute ball as well um so that really helps but i like it even more when i consider this to be the exact same character that we were just dealing with in rtd's finales where and and what goes on to essentially be said about matt smith's um you know youth by um moffat by the end of his run where he's like why do you think he chose such a young face like he's hiding such profound sadness um and thinking about where that ends up later in moffat's run from the very beginning i think is really beneficial on on this rewatch because um, it adds it some really nice layers of complexity and depth um while also still being able to very much enjoy matt smith's in the moment refreshing youthfulness you know i do i do and it's interesting hearing you say that because what i was going to say was that um what this episode does is sort of recontextualize the david Tennant 
years, at least the end of that those years, and say, mm. definitely with regards to his regeneration, um, you know, we're done. Like you say, we're done with we're done with guilt. We're done with pain. Mm-hmm. This is a new lease. This is a new lease on life for me. Is you know, I'm speaking as the doctor here. This is a new lease of life um, for me, and I'll go off and and be youthful. Um, intentionally so to sort of sweep aside the Russell era so that this new era Mm -hmm. of Moffat can uh, fly. Um, I hadn't considered the fact that, yeah, like as Matt Smith's time goes on, he does become more weighed down and weary by the years, not just the years of like the time war, but like beyond that, like his actual age and the history of the show Mm -hmm. is taken into consideration, which makes a lot of sense when you consider the fact that Matt Smith's era sort of wraps up and culminates around the 50th anniversary of the show. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a doctor who is going to become sort of one half of a definitive version of this character. And um, it's really, it's really fascinating to see it here in its infancy when it is just purely let's, we're just going to throw this character. We're just going to give them a completely new lease on life. Uh, We're going to sweep, we're going to blow out the, the dusk uh, cobwebs as such. Um, yeah. With this yeah. character. Um, Matt Smith is just like, like from the first, he's just, he's in it. He's totally in it. Yeah. But he also, and I was thinking about this because I was reading about this episode uh, before to, to do a bit of research. And um, Moffat, who was said something along the lines of like wanting to do a sort of reverse of what, David Tennant's first episode was. And if you remember in Christmas Invasion, David Tennant spent the majority mm. of that episode in bed and it relied on Rose and her family to to carry yeah. that story in his absence. It, it had to in a way because like Rose was the main character at that point. Um, yeah, exactly. This time around, <clears throat> they've got new, completely new characters. They've got no uh, connection to the past other than the TARDIS really, which is also destroyed and remodeled in this episode. And we'll talk about that later. Um, and so they, that you know, Moffat has to hit the ground running. He has to hit the ground with this Doctor in complete action, and so that's why you do get this sort of like Matt Smith's given every single tool he can use in in like across the whole episode to charm the audience, and it just mm-hmm. it just works. It just works. Even from the minute he pops up out of the TARDIS, you just look at him and you're like, "That's the Doctor." Yeah. Very much so. Um, he is completely in the role for, from from the get go, and like it, it's a total joy to watch. Like you know, Tennant's run by the end of it. Um, he, I mean, you know, he's weighed down by his entire run. It, you can't not be. Um, and so to have such a deliberate tonal choice, like you said, like wiping away the the guilt and the and sort of the the pain of of the end of RTD's era and being like here we go, we're just going to have fun now, is, some, like like I was saying before, it's simultaneously a great way to get new viewers on and also a good way to plant the seed for some character work later of, like, that's not how trauma works, though, buddy. Like, you can't mm-hmm. just pretend you're having a good time now. Um, like, you eventually will have to deal with the man that you are inside, and that's what makes, you know, Capaldi's run so compelling is because it's dealing with the fallout of the Matt Smith run, basically. Mm. Um but yeah, like Smith himself in the role, like you said, he's given every tool to be as compelling as he possibly can be. And like, he just runs with it. It helps that he has incredible chemistry with both of the actresses that play Amy, uh, mm. like both when she's a kid and and uh, Karen Gillan, obviously. Um, and you know, he does feel like the main character. You know, we do very much start with him. Um, but I do think that 
you know, whereas Rose positions Rose, obviously, as the main character, I think this episode does do a pretty good job of presenting him as like a, a co-protagonist. Um, and especially in the way that he, his struggles are, you know, uh, thematically reflected in her struggles as well. Like they're, they're both mm. fleeing from things at this point. Um, and I, I just think that works really well, especially pairing him with someone who's quite young as well. Um, it just... It just, and, and obviously these are the broader notes about the whole episode, not just Matt Smith related, but like it does just kind of like crackle with him at, at the center of it. It does. And the sense of them both fleeing from things like that's uh, that just totally feeds into the fairy tale aspect. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Moffat used to, to model this companion, doctor companion pairing on was Peter Pan and Wendy. You know, Pete, the doctor is the child right. that never yeah. grew up. Wendy is the, the girl he took away to Neverland. Like that's. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's entirely informs the arc of this series in, in a lot of ways. Um, and yes, like Mo- Matt Smith is a hundred percent the main character from the out of this episode. And I do wonder, and I, as we watch this series, uh, it'd be interesting to sort of discuss this more, um, whether that, cause that, I haven't finished watching this series yet in our rewatch for mm-hmm. the podcast, but I remember at the time a lot of people and myself included feeling like this season sidelines the companion, both in their emotional mm-hmm. reality uh, and as a character. Um, and I am curious to see if I will still feel the same way about that by the end of the rewatch. But yeah, just I'm remembering just now uh, that in this episode, I think Amy is, you know, she is definitely a character in her own right. She is, and sorry, I, I realize I am skewing now towards talk to talk about her um that's fine she she is definitely um and karen gillen we'll talk about her just in a sec um uh, but i do remember even in this episode just thinking it it is very different to how russell would position the companion at the front mm-hmm. and forefront of every episode um right and you know didn't always get it right as we did discover um, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I'm hoping that I will, that we will find that like that initial take is, is incorrect, but, uh, yeah, it does feel like the companion's interiority gets a little bit lost. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to feel about that moving forward because like I did, I don't, I don't actually know like what, two years ago at this point, I, I like I rewatched all of this stuff, um, or Last year. I think it was when I got my wisdom teeth out. That's right. Tell you what, folks, hell of a way to consume a bunch of Doctor Who is to get your wisdom teeth out, go on a bunch of pain meds, and then just watch Doctor Who all day. It is a, um, it's a trip. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I am definitely curious to see how I'm going to feel about uh, Amy and, and her sort of character arc as it develops out from here, because um, I was really struck in this first episode. There, there's a, a couple of shots of like, you know, um, Amy, Rory, and the Doctor, like, running around together, and you just instantly understand who they are as as a trio, who they are going to be to each other, and how they're going to bounce off of each other really, really well. Um, and I think that kind of instant characterization recognition is um, impressive for, for this mm. first episode. I, you know, can't speak to where we're going to go with any of this yet, but... For right now, um, Callan Gillan, I, I think, does a really great job of, like, stealing the show in her, in her own right. I think she she holds up to Matt Smith's performance's energy really well um, with a, a kind of, like, 
you know, not not like a not, not even like a new age companion really, because like I, I think every companion of, of RTD's era also had similar elements that Amy also um, is is projecting out there. But there is a a quiet like tempest of of like sexuality and immaturity and intelligence to Amy that I find very compelling. Um, and yeah, it's just exciting to like you said before to, to see the the origin point of some of this stuff. Oh, totally. And I, yeah, it's funny, obviously watching the episode and seeing the three of them together and knowing that, you know, Rory isn't a fully fledged companion yet, but will become one, spoiler alert, Mm. uh, down the line. (laughs) Um, It was, it was interesting watching the three of them in this episode and just, and knowing where that was going. Um, Because I do remember watching this the first time and, and I was like, we're never going to see Rory again, right? Like he's not a character. (laughs) Um, yeah. because I wanted so desperately to just have the, you know, the traditional male doctor, female companion set up because I was a teenager and didn't have any concept of joy or fun. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so yes, yeah, so it is very interesting watching, uh, the three of them play together and with Amy and with Karen Gillan's performance, you're right. She doesn't match up to Matt Smith, uh, exceptionally well. I, I do mm. sort of get the feeling, <laughs> And what we should we should talk about this, you know, um, from the off. Karen Gillan gives an amazing performance, and we're going to see her go from strength to strength as we go through her time on the show. Um, mm. But she does get an odd in- introduction by way of her career. If uh, yes, <laughs> I agree. Also, the way that the camera introduces her, I, I think, was a little bit like we don't need to ogle the companion this way. Like, um, there's definitely, I, I, yeah. there's definitely teething troubles just from the off. And I, I it mm-hmm. didn't diminish my enjoyment of the episode. It should yeah. be said, but, um, Moffat is a very randy writer. <laughs> he is, we know isn't this. he? Moffat has an interesting relationship to women. And I think you will like, Across his era, you actively see him begin to, you know, interrogate that relationship to women. Absolutely. I think the, what he gets to do with Amy and with River and then eventually with Clara. And, and then by the time you get to Bill, you've got him writing these like fully formed complex women who don't exist for any sort of like hanky panky for a straight male audience. You mm. know, it is, um, he, he gets there. He does get uh, there. But yes, you're absolutely right. In the, in the beginning here, there's definitely some teething issues with Amy. And I think that's why, and I think I talked about this on Twitter at some point recently, but like I, my memory of Amy was always just that she was like the kind of like way too romantic, way too sexualized companion. And then when I went back and rewatched, I found that like, she begins with the aesthetics of that mm. and then it quickly devo- it develops into the show having a conversation about why romantic feelings for the Doctor in that capacity aren't necessarily healthy and it interrogates what Amy's running away from mm. and, and her maturity and her growth and blah, blah, blah. Like, it, I know it goes really great places with her as a character, but I do fully agree with you that, like, the Kissagram stuff at the beginning here is such a strange choice. Um, it's funny because, like... What- like, how, how is she affording that house? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Amy that does not make sense, and that feeds into the story arc of this of the show this season um, mm. in a lot of ways. And so, I won't answer that question just yet. But there is a there is a sort of answer, but in very Moffat typical Moffat fashion, there's never like a it's never explicitly said. It's just you yeah. know you as the audience have to read into what happens in the finale to sort of understand the answer to that one. 
Um, mm-hmm. She is a kissogram. She and a, for those who don't know, a kissogram is someone who goes to parties and kisses people for fun, for money. Um, Mm-hmm. Very, very controversial at the time when it went out um, and paired with, you know, some other choice Amy um, moments across this series. It didn't, it it didn't bode well. It didn't sit well with, I think, uh, an audience who sort of uh, expected something and, and then got this. Um, that's a, probably the wrong way to put it, but I'm forging ahead. Um, <laughs> the aesthetics of sexiness. Yeah, it's funny because she... What happens with Amy's character is that she she does develop and have this storyline over the series, but there is there's a device that's going to be used uh, with the crack in the wall. I'm trying really hard not mm. to sort of give stuff away, and I realise we're straying a bit from the episode here and talking about it. Um, that means that, you know, some of that development is lost, and that's also part of the arc of the season. Um and so it's funny because like the, the her development as a character exists alongside these like frequent you know stumblings of like misplaced or misjudged like sexiness for lack mm-hmm. of a better word yeah and I'm not saying that like sex and romance has no place in the show I-, I am the first person to argue that the doctor should be allowed to have the full gamut of emotions and should be able to kiss people and fuck people and you know blah blah blah. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, you know, it would, it's limiting to the character to say they can't do that. It's not, um, yeah. uh, and the show as, and the show as well, you know, like, um, the audience need to sort of grow up a little bit. Um, but it's how you, it's how you depict that. And, you know, the real world, <laughs> uh, ramifications of it that I think this season just, you know, comes up against. And mostly I'd say located to this season. I don't remember it being much of an issue going forward after season six. Uh, no, because I think six. season six onwards kind of, um, I think it recent, it obviously recenters Amy and Rory. Mm. Um, and I think at that point, Moffat is no longer concerned with the titillation as much as he is like love, basically. Um, I mean, with a little and that's bit very with, sweet. It, love, absolutely. A little bit with River. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but River, I think River exists separately from the Amy sexualization issues yes. just because River is, I mean, she's introduced as a sexual being. Um, yeah. I, I think that there is a, like you were just saying for the doctor, like there's space for sexuality within the show. And I think having, especially having River show up as, you know, not a young sexualized Mm. woman but as like a mature fully sexual fully capable character in her own right um is something i always really respected about her i think it's the reason why queer people love her so much as well like she's got that very like vampy fun energy to her um and but i mean even then like so much of her vibe is based in her love for the Doctor. Um, and I think that, you know, for for all the criticisms that we will level at Stephen Moffat for his interpretations of sexuality, um, I, I think he ultimately strives to ground it in genuine connection yeah. when it's presented like this. Um, and I, it's not always perfect and it won't always be, but I, I do think that there is... Uh, merit in in kind of the the approach that he has, um, mm. but we are blowing this way forward into his era. So let's we are <laughs> let's pull it back. Focus on the eleventh hour. We are, and I, I will just say, like in relation to what you're saying, like he he 
definitely gets the benefit of, and I think this is one of the great strengths of the Moffat of these, of you know, the Eleventh Doctor era, is that mm. there's an ongoing tight cast that recur through yes. a long period of time. And I was reflecting on it this morning, thinking about the fact that you know each Russell series, and I think we said this before on the podcast, has a different leading duo. Like mm-hmm. there's always someone swapped out and swapped in, and blah blah blah. And so you never get you never get time and consistency. Yeah. One of the things, one of the great foundational aspects of this episode is that we are going to be with these characters for a long time, and that's really exciting actually, just to think about because it's not it's very rare on Doctor Who, I think. And especially in this time when this episode went out, it was very rare to, you know, to have a long-term companion, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's very exciting. Matt Smith and Karen Gillan, top-notch. I think Karen Gillan's slightly taller than him as well, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or she yeah. is when she puts boots on. No, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. And to, to kind of bring it back to the 11th hour specifically, the, the reason why I love these two together so much as a doctor and companion is... Uh, they have a very childlike way of like egging each other on, um, mm. you know, like they're, they're constantly kind of like teasing out the next step from each other in a very fun and, and lighthearted way, which again, now that I've said it out loud is another interesting contrast to what he eventually does with Clara and the doctor where you get that same dynamic, but it turns into something else. Um, and I, I think we're going to find this is a, a, a series of contrasts with, with Moffat basically mm. uh, because I, I don't think he's afraid to be self-referential with his work, but not in a law way, in a thematic way. Um, mm. And that's very exciting. But anyway, the 11th hour, once again, <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk. Let, let, okay. Let, let's, let's really ground ourselves in the beginning of Moffat's era here. What do you think of the new title logo? I'm not the biggest fan of it, um, but it, and I'll, I'll explain why I say that. It it always struck me that that logo was so at odds with everything else that Russ that fuck. I'm gonna stop saying Russell now. Moffat, Moffat, mm-hmm. Moffat. Okay, I've got it. Um, <laughs> um, it always struck me that 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 logo uh, was so anti what Moffat was doing with the show. Um. Because I guess in my head I thought like you know fairy tale, so it's gonna be like a fairy tale script. It's gonna be, um, uh, it's gonna be a fairy tale font. Um, I think mm. I appreciate it on its own, uh, and I also really love the, and I, don't, I can't believe it's never been done before. The the D and the W forming a small TARDIS in the logo. <laughs> yeah, it's very cute. Like someone was working for their money when they designed that. Um, oh yeah. I also have a weird amount of nostalgia for like the big block font that they use for the actor names. Like, I don't know <laughs> what it is about it, but every time I see it, it like gives my chest that little like, oh, I'm a kid watching Doctor Who again feeling, um, which nice. is weirdly nice. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I I do know what you mean. It's it it is. It is the sh- it's oddly enough, it's the logo that I think was associated with the show for the longest time during mm-hmm. this, like mm-hmm. in this modern era that's still ongoing. Um and 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 yes and yes it, it's good I, what do you mm. think of the um the titles the like the the what? um the the new titles with the tardis and the time tunnel oh um i i like it uh i think it's very 
I mean, it's very Moffat, isn't it? It's very, it's it's big, it's brash. It kind of times ties in with the whether they've re-recorded the the theme song. Like it's all just very, everything's been like amped up. Um, like everything's bolder now. It's bigger. It's it's brighter. Um, mm. I I do like it. It's like like you said, it's not my favorite. Um, but I I you know I enjoy it. I weirdly enough, I I'm pretty sure as this all shakes out, um, the title credits for uh, Chibnall's era are probably going to be my favorite still. Um, yeah. just because they look incredible. Yeah, they do. That's probably the one thing. And they sound amazing too. Yeah, <laughs> the one thing they got right. But <laughs> the one th- oh, we all get to that. Um, I I also really like the the. The thing grated on me, I remember at the time, the actual like arrangement of the classic dun 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 dun, dun um, as being like too, too sci-fi, I guess. And I guess that's, it's okay. funny, isn't it? Like that, 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 that's what I'm rejecting. That's what I'm like coming up against. Remembering, I suppose, me as, you know, mm-hmm. 15, 16 year olds, however, no, 16, um, was not liking the, t- the, the theme music for being too sci-fi, um, now I guess I hear it and I yeah it 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 sounds properly otherworldly, um, yeah agreed and not audience friendly in a weird way. Hmm. Um. I have no more to say on that really, but yes, it's it's it. I like Great. I like the look of it. I like the whole thing really. Yeah. In in it yeah, and the little Star Wars yeah. font as well. Hmm. Agreed. Very nice. Very nice. Um. I think for me, it, uh, it. I was thinking about the opening credits, and it got me thinking about the opening scene. I do wish that we had just started with the uh, Amelia Pond praying to Santa scene, um, because I think having the big bombastic crashing to earth opening followed by the the beautiful fairy tale stuff mm. is a bit of a tonal mismatch. Um, you- and I think that. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, I, you finished your thought. Sorry. Oh, no, I, it just kind of like to me ties into. I think my only real criticism of this episode is that I think it's pacing and scripting is, is a little bit wonky at times. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's trying to do a lot and it, it achieves like 90% of it. And so again, these, these aren't like major gripes. It's just, you know, we're, we're at that point of the show. So, so the, um, that title, not title, sorry, that pre title sequence you're talking about where the TARDIS is mm-hmm. crash landing over London. Um, that was added very, very late in the day to the episode. Oh. Um, and because I think it was something on the lines of Moffat wanted a more bombastic, energetic opening as opposed to the very sort of sedate Amy, you know, like there isn't a lot of incident and, um, uh, excitement. (laughs) You'll agree in that first 10 minutes. And so he was like, let's just start with a big TARDIS crashing scene, go to the titles. And then the episode (laughs) starts. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And look, I, I can kind of see that. Although, and I think what one of my biggest um, like praises of this episode is just how long it's happy to spend doing nothing. Um, mm. Like it just sits around with these characters for big stretches of time. Um, and because of that, you do get a, a better fleshed out characterization of, of what is going on sort of internally with them. And you get the fish fingers and, and custard classic um, stuff, mm. which... I learned. Uh, apparently, they were like coconut vanilla little cakes, and that's what he was dipping in there. They are, yeah, they're um, little coconut cakes, and and but also cheese cream cheese sauce. Oh, yeah, it wasn't custard. No, it was cheese sauce, and I was like, why is Ew. it cheese sauce if you're Would giving him coconut cakes? Fish? Yeah, yeah, like what is happening? <laughs> oh, Moffat, that's cruel. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, Sandra, that was me. Um, that was um, yes. Um, Look, uh, yeah. Sorry, that, and that also I just want to say that reminds me. Um, this episode is very funny. Uh, I think in both its its script work and in its physical comedy, there's one point where he's asking for yogurt and he just rips the lid off and drinks it like it's a like a cup. Mm. Um, and it's just stupid little things like that. And the way he fully commits to spitting those foods out as he's trying them, I think again him and Amy have such a natural rapport with each other that anytime they banter off of each other, I can't help but just kind of like laugh along with them. You know that um, you're absolutely right, and that. Um doctor eating stuff scene was apparently inspired by a Winnie the Pooh episode. No, not episode. A book, a Winnie the Pooh book where Tigger, uh, like keeps saying that Tigger's love all foods, but then also hates all the foods given to him. And you can already <laughs> see like the, like that's another story, a storybook fairy tale, like source that yeah. Moffat's drawn from. He, he, what I also find and love about him is like, he's very like inspired by his kids so he's got two kids, two mm. boys, um, and he often like will just pull stuff from their lives as well. And the crack above Amy's wall was inspired by a crack above his kid's wall. You know, really? Yeah. And oh, so that's super nice, actually. It's it's really nice, but like it's also like this man is like is fully fully in tune with what kids, well, as in as in tune as any adult could be uh, making television. Mm in tune with what kids, you know, in, what scares them and what, you know, they enjoy. And that's on full yeah, display in this yeah. episode too. Um, and also I suppose why people, as we'll go through the series, uh, often reject some elements of the show because it's too kid friendly. Um, yeah. It is funny. You're absolutely right. And that, uh, yeah, that uh, initial, that, that whole opening with Amy, um, Amelia, sorry, at this point, uh, mm. at night in the kitchen, the midnight kitchen, uh, is so, it's just so nice. It's so nice to watch. Um, yeah, it's a warm hug. It's a warm um, hug. Do you want to know the story about yeah. the girl who plays Amelia? Please. <laughs> Lemonade, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> um, that's a little Simpsons reference for you. Um, the so they were having a lot of trouble trying to find like a, a little Scottish girl basically to play the role, and then eventually Karen Gillan was like, "Oh well, I have a cousin, um, and she oh. could play it." They look the reason that's that's mainly the reason why they look like you know so identical, like that they're related. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know this. Apparently, they'd never even met in person until the read through of the episode. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That, I just find that wild. Like, oh, here's my cousin. She looks like me. Let's put her in the episode. Can she act? Never met her. <laughs> yeah. I find that wild. She does such a good job, though. Like, little Amelia, um, and, and she has to shoulder a fair bit of stuff in the beginning mm. of this episode, and also more at the end of this season, if memory serves me correctly. Um, they keep using her throughout the whole of Amy's run. Oh, okay. Lovely. Good, good. Because, mm. yeah, she, I think she's exceptional. Um, and I think that... You know, there's a moment there where it's almost the doctor traveling with a kid mm. and, you know, yes, it, it's irresponsible and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, but like, but again, if you go along with this as a, as a vibe piece, as a fairy tale, um, seeing him come alive as almost a parental role or like a big brother role, um, as opposed to a companion or, you know, um, guide role for, for an adult, um, is just a really nice 
beat for the character. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's just good. But also I would argue that the Doctor can provide that, is that protector and guide role for children too. And that's also what hmm. Moffat's doing through the entirety of his run on the show. Um, yeah. is, is the kind of relationship we see here in that, in the top of this episode, um, you know, and you're as, uh, yeah, uh, obviously you need a, 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 a adult companion who can, you know, talk to the audience and who kids can identify with, because mm-hmm. I don't think kids identify with kids very well, yeah. apparently. I'm not a psychologist or anything. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it is funny how, how much that, that di- the, the dynamic between them just really does work very well. And you also think about it as, you know, if you had kid, like young kids who started with like the beginning of RTD's era and now they're coming into their teen years um, and then you present them with, well, what if like the cool imaginary thing from your childhood came back and offered you an out, like offered mm. you a way to like, get away from things, um, you know, and we, we talked before about how different showrunners present life on earth and whether it's worth going back to after being with the doctor. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you, you get the first seed of that here with Moffat where he, he basically says, fuck your wedding, fuck your responsibilities. Let, let's go. Um, and I, I mean, I love that. I, I think it's great. I, I think the show should lean into it more. The idea that like, and, and again, like we talked about, it's difficult to show life on earth as being kind of, you know, the mundane thing you have to go back to. But I think what he ends up doing with Amy really well is with, with the Rory stuff is presenting it as like a, a balance of, of those, totally. those concepts, you know? It's never a case of like the companion jumped on board the TARDIS and suddenly life as they knew it is over. Like, it's like... Mm-hmm how do I make that life that I had and this life I now have like work together? And I love that. Yes. I love, love, love yeah. that. And it's such a rejection of what's come before. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Cause RTD threw up a fucking brick wall between those concepts. Mm. Um, and yeah. Mm. Um, let's talk about Rory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rory. He's a bit Simple dumb Rory. and I love him. Yeah, I think he's sweet. Um, And like I said before, he's just instantly understandable as the kind of lovelorn boyfriend who Amy's not fully committed to yet, even Mm. two years ago. And then when we see her again, she's obviously running away from her wedding. Um, And I, I think that the... What they end up doing with Rory as kind of the like the the doofus compared to the cool guy doctor and ultimately where that love lands for amy mm. um I, I think is actually quite a beautiful message it's a very human message um you know the, the the rejection of the fantastical for the everyday which might not be as exciting but is just the sweetest dude you've ever met um love all of that and seeing that begin here with this guy who is just getting yelled at at work all day and is introduced as like, Oh, he's not actually my boyfriend. Don't worry about it. Like it's, it's, it's just a great little bit of foundational work for Rory. Uh, but as, as you said at the top of the show, like you kind of don't assume you're going to see him again after this. Mm. Yeah, you don't. Um, or at least I didn't, but yeah, it, it's almost impossible now to think about this era and not think about Rory being there as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think Arthur Darville is, you know, a, a, in some ways even more of a revelation than Karen Gillan um, because <laughs> he, I just find him so effortlessly like charming and, you know, naive, but also totally like in command at the same time. Like he's got, 
he's he's and he's his grasp of comedy is uh, all of their comedy like comedic skills are like flexed exceptionally well in this episode. Um, they are. Yeah. I just love that bit where after they've defeated Prisoner Zero and they're in the um in the changing room, the hospital changing room, and he's like. <gasps> Yes, <laughs> you know, you send them all away, and, and then you spring them back, and now you're taking <laughs> your clothes off. And <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you going to turn around? <laughs> nope, nope. <laughs> like, oh, it just sings. It sings. It sings. It sings. Um, yeah, I think Arthur Darville's really good. The other like odd little uh, com- um, casting choice is one Olivia Coleman, Academy Award winner Olivia Coleman. Before she was famous. As- well, well, yeah, true, true. Um, I, I am now imagining, um, what was that movie called where she was off on that island? Uh, the Lost Daughter. The Lost Daughter, but she's still patient. Uh, Escape Zero. Patient, uh, <laughs> prisoner Zero. Yeah, some of us are just trying to watch a film. <laughs> and she gets stabbed with a hat pin. She's like, Prisoner Zero has escaped. Yeah, uh, but no. Look, I I enjoy Olivia Coleman in anything she does. Mm. She's just generally very very watchable. Um, I think that her performance is is fine as it goes on, but I never think it's as scary as the moment when she fucks up the voice between her and her projected daughter for the first time. Yeah, and she has that very casual. Oh, I did it wrong again, didn't I? Like, I think that is much more scary than her being like, you will burn, Doctor. Like, ugh, okay, whatever. And the line after <laughs> um, that where she's like, oh, yes, I fucked it up, I fucked it up again, didn't I? And then she's like, so hmm. many mouths. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's good shit. Good writing. Yeah. Good, good writing. writing. Good performances. Uh, yeah, good writing. It makes a difference. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about Moffat, um, you know. Well, I mean, he's kind of been the backbone of our entire conversation tonight, but like, this is, this is the beginning of his era. Um, and there's so the, the bones of what he will go on to be are, are here from the beginning, which I, I find really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. There's just, it's not even growing pains as such. It's just the, the process of becoming a better writer as you flex into being more comfortable on the show, your show running. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think as a first attempt and as, as an introduction to his work, uh, this is like an amazing jumping off point. Uh, yeah, it really is. It's, it's, it's in many ways, it's like a thesis, right? It's a thesis yeah, for yeah. what, he wants to do with the show um and but like just just in terms of like the i i I, the start of this episode the decision to sort of have amy as a child and then amy Mm. as an adult like to me just like it just sings as a writer to see that choice being made because no moffat is you know known for using time to his advantage in his episodes but like it's just so exciting to see it used and knowing it's going to be used even more down the line, um, because it's mm-hmm. like this is a show about time travel. How is this the yeah. first showrunner that's actually thought about like that? <laughs> <laughs> the, the the majesty and the magic of time. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, I completely agree. Mm. Um, no, I think he's firing on all cylinders in this episode. I think he. Yeah, um, we're gonna see some good stuff from that Moffat man. I don't know if he's gone on to oh, bigger... Yeah. Got a got a good feeling about it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been interesting. <laughs> it's been interesting watching this episode in at the same time as watching his show at the moment, The Time Traveler's Wife. Um, which is out on HBO uh, or binge if I think it's binge in Australia. Um primarily because like Moffat repeatedly has used the Time Traveler's Wife in Doctor Who, like 
as a, a mm. reference point as like a motif a motif yeah. yeah like it's it's it it informed like the plot of the girl in the fireplace and it again informs what happens here where like in girl in the time traveler's wife the main i don't know any of the characters i still don't remember um anything about that novel but um mm-hmm. the 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 main um woman in it she meets her husband like as a kid <laughs> basically and the husband's like well right. we're gonna be we're gonna be married one day and then she meets him as an adult and he doesn't know her. And like, it's just like, that's replicated entirely in the opening of this episode in, the, in that concept of the doctor, like always just like missing her or, you know, you know, mm-hmm. appearing out of sync in, in Amy's life. Um, there is an element of like, you know, culpability there where like, you know, that is the doctor like actually taking responsibility for his actions. And in some ways you could probably argue that him taking her on board the TARDIS is in a way, because he has that line where he's like, She's like, you know, um, I was a kid and then I grew up and he's like, well, we'll fix that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I love that line so much. I do love that line too. Um, I'm rambling a little bit. Mm. No, no I, I, you're fine. Like this episode is, is chock full of Moffat lines. I mean, he, he's a very good, he's just a very good writer. Um, is basically what I think I was trying to say there, but he has that great, uh, like bit with Amelia at the beginning where he's like, you know, when, uh, adults tell you that everything's going to be all right because they're, you know, they're trying to convince you of that. she's like, yeah, he's like, everything's going to be fine. Like Mm. it, it's cute. It, it crackles. It's very doctor dialogue. Um, at one point he gets that good moment where he's like, no Sonic, no TARDIS, 17 minutes to save the world. I could do it. Um, it's, it's confident and it's funny and it's a little bit knowing as well. Like, you know, like you said before, he has a really good understanding of how to appeal to kids. And I think that in the way that a lot of good kids or family media does is it appeals to kids on a surface level. And then an adult in the room watching can like be like, huh, that was a neat little bit of like maturity buried in there. Um, Mm. Yeah. It's just good. We also get a, um, a classic Moffat trope where the doctor's uh, sort of resolution to the episode to, to scare the Atraxi away from ever coming back to the planet. And we haven't really talked about the plot much. And I, I don't think there really is much to say really about it. It's an excuse to have all this good stuff happen. <laughs> totally. And that's also, it was the same thing with Rose. Remember like the, the plot was incidental mm-hmm. really to that episode. It was more about introducing us to the doctor and Rose. Um, but the, the doctor's sort of way of scaring away the Atraxi at the end of the episode is, is to, is to send them his CV yeah and he's like look me up i'm the biggest you know (laughs) this planet is protected by me the doctor um grandstanding which you know will get a bit old (laughs) uh yeah a a little bit old i I definitely agree but again i can't help but view it as one of the many foundational bricks for the capaldi era so i'm Mm. i'm gonna forgive it up for a lot because i know where it's going but yes um yeah i'm interested how do you feel because how do you mean? I, not to discuss now. I'm just. I'm curious what you mean by that, and and how what how it's going to play out. I don't know what you're what you're talking about. Oh yeah, no, I don't know what I'm talking about either. I'm just saying things. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, yeah. Sh- um, sh- sh- don't tell the audience that. That's <laughs> we're not supposed to tell them that. <laughs> the jig is up. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and I do think that Matt Smith has a 
an interesting time with the grandstanding uh, across his uh, seasons. Um, I quite like it in this episode. I, I mean, the hologram stuff is is cheesy. It's very Doctor Who, though. It's you know, I have seen some people not like that. They they think the moment should just stand on on Smith's performance alone, mm. which I can see both arguments personally. Like if you're a kid watching this, or if you're an audience returning to the show to check out the new era, I think having a little like flashcard of mm. like here's all the previous ones and here's the new cute one. Um, it's not the end of the world to me. No, I agree. I actually agree with that. Um, in terms of the, the archive footage used, I, I think it's actually quite a nice, uh, yeah. sort of way to sort of sum up the story so far and to sort of say, this is the story ongoing. Um, yes. Story ongoing, but also new kids in the block. Mm. Like, let's go. Um, also, and what- Paul McGann was in there. And Paul McGann was in there. Uh, finally canon, I think. The first time footage. No, no, <laughs> sorry. The first time was the, ten- um, the next Doctor. Uh, um, we- one thing we haven't talked about is the Doctor's costume. Um, yeah, I... Oh, controversial. (laughs) No, like, I I think it makes sense for him. I think especially from a character point of view, you know, you've got this, like, spry, hot young dude and he's dressing like a fucking old man because that's what he is inside. Is It's on the nose, but I think it's cute. It's it's very hipstery. It's very of the time. Um, Yeah, uh, whatever. Do you know (laughs) they were going to put him in, like, a pirate outfit? (laughs) Like Dan? No, not not quite like Dan. More like a striped t-shirt and like a buckley oh, pirate okay. jacket. Um, gotcha, gotcha. I'm glad they didn't. No, that would have been that would have aged terribly. I think. Yes, awfully. That, that's awfully, very like 2009 aged. emo humor kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. I get you. Um, um, it is a cute outfit, and I also remember um, spending many a year after that wearing bow ties and thinking I look cool and um, yeah. Oof, irreversible damage. But also um, I think I dress like Peter Capaldi now quite a bit. So <laughs> I mean, look, that's yeah, I could say that. Guess I'm a big nerd. <laughs> um, I, well, yes, a, a, an old, old nerd. Um, <laughs> I guess the last thing we have to talk about here is that there is a brand new TARDIS. Ah, <sighs> Well, I mean, okay, yes, we do need to talk about this because I've seen that TARDIS get a lot of hate online and part, I guess it's not entirely unjustified, but I have a real soft spot for this TARDIS. I think it it Mm -hmm. is gorgeous. Um... The, ex- the exterior, the new, like, the new paint job and the new lights and everything, I think it, the, the fresh look and the little St. John's Ambulance logo on the door, I think it the outside looks great. But I think the inside looks like... I think the inside is exactly what I want from a TARDIS, which is, like, it's like a playhouse. It's like a, a, um, a den. Yeah. And there's the levels to it. There's, like, the doors and the stairs that go off in different directions. There's so much happening around this, the place. Um, and obviously it's in need of like a, a more linear, uh, sort of clear vision of style. Cause it is a very haphazard. Um, mm-hmm. but I just think in this first episode, at least I appreciate it as like, just, there's just so much happening and it's all new and cool. Yeah. 
yeah. what do you think uh, i agree um your initial comments on it a while back helped me recontextualize the way i felt about it because you know you described it as the tardis should feel like a living space for the doctor um yes and i i do get that vibe from this this new one um I don't like the console. I'll say that um, it, the the typewriter and the hot water tap, and uh, I, I I'm I'm not a fan of things that are recognizably everyday human stuff ending up on that console just because it's like that would be cookie fun. <laughs> like no, I I don't want that kind of cookie fun. Put it away, you know. Um, mm. Other than that, though, I like the vibe of the room, and I, I do think it, it's a good fit for Matt Smith. It's a good fit for where the character is at at this point. Yeah. Um, I think sort of a almost like a physical manifestation of the desire for him to have more people in there with him is mm. that it becomes like a big room that people could hang out in, like you said, a clubhouse kind of thing. Um, and I, I do enjoy all of that. Um, and you know, yeah, if, if people who don't like it, there's a or don't like aspects of it, I think they refine the idea and make it a lot uh, more sci-fi and a bit more serious uh, with the one that comes after it. And I think that Mm. one has a lot of... I think that one is, like, the favourite of all TARDIS interiors. It it does seem a bit that way, Mm. yeah. Like, the the kind of... The clean steel, but paired with wooden bookshelves. Like, it's it's warm and cold at the same time. Mm. It's a living space and a spaceship. Um, It's... Yeah, it's got a lot going on. I think it's unfortunate, just to get off on a tangent here, Mm. but, like... The crystallized stuff in Jodie's TARDIS, I think, actually could work if... I mean, I love the giant fingers, but they make it an inhospitable space. Um, And, I mean, her doctor has been quite inhospitable, but, again, I don't think any of this is actually intentional, and so I can't help but view it as, like, just shitty design. Um, But the alien ism of it um i i think could work quite well if you did like a capaldi thing where you smash together comfort and discomfort um instead yeah. they just went all the way aesthetics which is stunning to look at in still photos but it just does not feel like a space that anybody would ever want to spend time in no it, it it's so uh, um non-user friendly <laughs> yes um, exactly and then you know smith's tardis by comparison i think is too human <laughs> like, like yeah like um, we'll see it, as the show goes on like there are actual scenes of them just hanging out in that room mm, I, I don't, which i love which i love we we got that in the russell as well less so towards the end um you know um so that's what that space should feel like it should feel homey in a weird way um mm-hmm i don't know I, do you know i just had an idea mm. i was thinking about tardis interiors what if for the the specials when Tenet comes back, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We don't see the interior of the TARDIS until Donna sees it. And then when she sees it, it's almost like the one that she was used to, but things are a little bit more dilapidated and wrong now. And her discomfort at that, I think, would be an amazing little, like, character beat and, like, you know, visual storytelling uh, beat. If if they're doing the story I think they're doing, which is, you know, re-regenerates into um, David Tennant for the wrong reasons. So, but I just was just thinking. No, I like that you think. Um, and, and I, yeah, I feel like we're going to get an exact re- replica of the... the, the you reckon? Yeah. Um, but I'm also, like, I'm loving... I'm drawing my very best to lower all expectations so that right. I'll be I got, I got suitably it. surprised. 
Yeah, look, that, that's very fair. That's very fair. Um, the eleventh hour. Any any final thoughts you want to get out? Um, I think that the yeah, like just in concept, Prisoner Zero is pretty bad CG. You are you are right, but um, uh, and a little bit confusing at times. But um, I think yeah, like bit. just it's a plot device. The image of the you know the 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 dog and the man, or the like the mother and the two kids, and mm-hmm. all of that is really good. I think that. It's very thing, you know? It's very thing. You've put in our notes here, what the fuck was that insane shutter snapping montage? Oh my God. So there's a moment where um, they're standing out in the, I think like the sun gets weird. And so everyone pulls out their phones and starts taking photos of it. And Matt Smith is like, oh, stupid humans. You're always on your phone. Then he stops. And he has this like Sherlock Holmes over stylized moment where like the camera just zooms around to everybody in that park as he's meant to be like, I guess, taking in all the information. But with every jump of the camera, there's these like incessant like shutter snapping sounds and so it's just and it's 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 hideous it sounds awful it goes on for so long um and an episode i think otherwise is directed very well i was just like what was that so i think they made that like it is actually a sequence comprised of still photographs um but why stylistic choice uh, to show that the doctor mm. pays attention to everything and this is the other we thing we all make choices is that, but that was a choice that was a choice that particular sequence <laughs> and I don't think we've seen too many of these but like it's always good to remember this show was being made at the same time as Moffat was making uh, Sherlock yes which I could say that yeah like often, I think sometimes Moffat forgets he's not writing Sherlock, he's writing Doctor Who, and he puts a lot of those Sherlockisms, like the Mind Palace and shit like that. I, I, I mm-hmm. think I hate that show, but I don't know. Um, yeah. Into the show. So I think that's where that came from. Um, oh, also Hot Jeff, and he's probably looking at porn on his laptop. That's funny. Ah, oh, Hot Jeff is hot. Hot Jeff is hot. He's <laughs> <It was> hot. <laughs> Good point. Um, You're right. All right. House. The eleventh fun is fun. fun is fun. <laughs> um, you know what else is fun? The eleventh hour. <laughs> Callum, what are you giving it? Oh, it's an A plus, right? Oh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a bit more discerning about handing out my A pluses now that we're in the Moffat era because I know what an A plus Moffat is, sure. and uh, we'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I want to retract my uh, my grade and give it an just an A. But the plus was just for enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, I, I can respect that. I think a, an A minus or an A is, is just about right for this one. Mm. Gorilla, flying start. And here we go. Moffat era. Let's, let's, let's do the damn thing. Geronimo. Uh, yeah. Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in my room. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a catchphrase um, is that? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, As always, thank you so much for listening to us each and every fortnight here on Two Hearts. If you'd like, please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to the show, uh, because it helps us grow and makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, We would love to hear your thoughts and feelings or questions on the Moffat era, on the 11th hour, on Amy, on Matt Smith, on whatever it is that you want to say. Uh, Please feel free to email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Or as we said before, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Two Hearts Pod. That's two, the number two. I have been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricallum. 
And I have been James. You can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. We, well, actually, before we wrap things up, I think we've got a little, a little Adelaide announcement. We do have an Adelaide announcement, which is that we, <laughs> we're going to a film screening, and you can see us at that screening because we'll be at that screening. <laughs> Come say hi. <laughs> I was going to be like, well, we're going to be at the Adelaide premiere. And I was like, no, wait, this is just a public screening of a film and we're going to be there. <laughs> so, yeah. Don't make it into something it's not. Don't make it into, exactly. Look, um, yes, they're, they're oddly enough screening the two classic 60s um, Dalek movies uh, here in Adelaide and across Australia, I think. And there is a session... There's a couple of sessions here. There's one at the Mercury, in, if you're from Adelaide, one at the Mercury and one at Palace Nova on July 10th. Uh, James and I are going to go to the, the Palace Nova one and um, we'll see you there. Yeah, be there or be square. Be there or be square. I okay. was just thinking, James, like, mm. if do people if know what we look like? And I, I, I don't actually know the answer to that. But if you go to our website, um, which is twoheartspodcast.com, we don't have a www. Um, then you can uh, find our headshots there. <coughs> Great! What an organic way to uh, you know introduce a concept to our audience. We've already uh, talked. Thank about you, everybody, the for. No, it was. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So head over to our website and maybe come down and say hi. We mm. would love to see no. you there. Um, we'll. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've seen them a million times. James, I don't think you've seen them before. I have never seen them. Oh my God, no. you're in for such a treat and you're going to hate me afterwards. <laughs> I cannot wait. Um, anyway, we will see you fine, folks, in two weeks' time for The Beast Below, which is... Mm. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. And, and yeah, hopefully we'll be... Uh, we're talking about the Moffat era um, very regularly from now on. Um, I mean, we're in it. This is it. Now I'm in it. Okay. <laughs> that's enough of that. Mm. Who was that? Uh, that's Haim. Just trying to find my way back for a minute. Yeah, it is Haim. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye.